Do you fully trust your doctor? For many, the answer is no. The result of a system in place that seems too heavily influenced by money. But how exactly has this affected the doctor-patient relationship? And what can be done to repair this bond while improving the system for everyone? F. Perry Wilson, MD, is a nephrology and internal medicine specialist, faculty member at Yale School of Medicine, and regular guest on CNN. He attempts to answer these questions and more in the new book, How Medicine Works and When It Doesn't, Learning Who to Trust to Get and Stay Healthy. Perry, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me here. My pleasure. So what was your goal with this book? Well, this book started, um, it actually sprung out of a course, uh, an online course I did for Yale called um, Understanding Medical Research, Your Facebook Friend is Wrong, which was a way to teach people who have no scientific training how to understand medical science better. The course was designed to teach people with no scientific background how to understand medical science in an era where I saw social media promoting a lot of misinformation. Um, and that was very successful. More than 75,000 people around the world have taken the course at this point. And I wanted to sort of distill those lessons into a book that would even be more approachable. Uh, but what changed as I was writing the book was a greater appreciation for why people are susceptible to medical misinformation. And it's not because they're, you know, uneducated or ignorant or or dumb or anything like that. A lot of it comes from frustration with a medical system that's really unfeeling and uncaring. And so what the book became was almost a plea to restore this bond that used to exist between patients and doctors where we trusted each other um, and we looked on each other as colleagues in this adver in this war against disease um, and how we get back there. And it's going to require movement, honestly, on both sides. And uh, while you do spend much of this book talking about the doctor-patient relationship, I feel like from my own experience and also to talking a lot of, uh, of different people about it, it's much less about that individual relationship and more about the system that's in place that causes a lot of mistrust amongst people. And the bottom, uh, bottom line for a lot of folks is that uh, the pharmaceutical companies have such a major influence uh, in the medical establishment, especially in this country. And you point this out in chapter eight, U.S. drug prices are amongst the highest in the world. Pharma spent $350 million lobbying Congress in 2021, and they were hitting both sides of the aisle, too, with two-thirds of members of Congress accepting money from pharma. They make $1.2 trillion in 2021 around the world. $500 million of that goes to U.S. pharmaceutical companies. Up to 75% of all TV- $500 billion of that. Uh, 500 million, excuse me, yeah. up to 75% of all TV ad spending comes from pharmaceutical companies. Major companies spent more on marketing and ad sales than research and development in that time. Obviously, drug up prices get driven up as a result of that. Three in 10 adults, and this is according to your book, have skipped a medication because of the cost, while more than 100,000 Medicare patients die prematurely each year because they can't afford medication. This industry, just in the last 20 plus years now, has dealt with 20 billion in civil and legal fines. So I guess that's a pretty big mountain for a lot of people to overcome. So as you point all these things out yourself, and you actually had a negative experience in trying to work with the pharmaceutical company as well, I guess, what is the best way to try and get past that as you try to regain this trust between doctors and patients? It's, it's, it's a huge problem. And I think it's emblematic of 
all of these issues that patients face when interacting with the healthcare system, but probably nowhere more than with pharma. Um, there was a Gallup poll in 2019, which looked at the 25 major industries, major sectors across the United States um, and in terms of approval from the public. And pharmaceutical came in dead last out of 25 below every other sector. They had lower approval ratings than Congress, which is actually you know pretty impressive. It's hard to do worse than Congress when it comes to approval of the American people. Um, and you're absolutely right. These are, as I as I discussed, you know, these are profit-driven companies. These are, you know, for profit. They're trying to extract profit from their discoveries. Um, and there needs to be substantial reform there. Um, and part of getting reform means convincing our legislators that taking pharmaceutical dollars is the wrong thing to do because it makes you beholden to these people. And pharmaceutical companies are spending three times as much money lobbying Congress than the next largest industry, which is oil and gas. Most people are surprised to hear that. They think that big oil companies, you know, want drilling rights and stuff like that. They are dwarfed by the pharmaceutical companies because this is hugely, hugely profitable. But here's the caveat. And this book tries to talk about nuance and tries to about, talk about a little bit of a deeper understanding. I'll use epinephrine as an example. Epinephrine is a, many of your listeners will know is a drug. It's been around for decades. It costs nothing to make. I mean, a dollar less than that to make a dose of epinephrine and it's being sold for hundreds of dollars, you know, and this is a life-saving drug to people who have severe allergies. You know, your severe peanut allergy, you don't get your epinephrine, you die, right? So this is completely necessary and it's being sold for that price because pharmaceutical industry greed, no question about it. Here's the thing to people need to remember. Epinephrine still works. It's not actually, we, we have this tendency because we think of pharmaceutical companies as bad actors to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, everything they do is just designed to kill us. Not actually true. And people make bad decisions because they're so they 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 hate those pharmaceutical companies so much they can't bear with the idea that their product might actually do something for your health. And the truth is. Thanks in some parts to government regulation agencies, which have failures, yes, but broadly speaking, the drugs themselves are relatively safe and in many cases quite effective. I think epinephrine is a quintessential example. So we have to teach people how to separate that true emotional feeling and desire for reform of pharmaceutical industry, and I'm right on board with you for that, from this idea that all medications are useless because they're, they're not. In fact, one pharmaceutical executive I was talking to once said, you know, the easiest way I can make money is having a drug that's really effective. And it's like, yeah, that's true. You know, they, they're, they're going to market, they're going to make commercials. They're going to make you think it's great, but it's actually a lot easier to sell that drug when the data shows that it works. How much influence do pharmaceutical companies have on doctors who are making decisions with regards to the medicines that they are suggesting for their patients? Harry? It varies. Um, and you can actually look this up. Um, if you if you Google the Sunshine Act, you can actually look up your doctor and you can see all the money, both in terms of, of, of any cash, but also, you know, uh, gifts and kind like lunches and dinners and stuff that pharmaceutical companies give to doctors. That's all publicly reported now. I think anything above $5 or the equivalent of $5. You can look up your doctor and see exactly which pharmaceutical companies have paid them what. Now, the vast majority of doctors in the United States are getting either nothing from any pharmaceutical companies or amounts that are like less than $200 per year 
which is to say it's hard to think that they're completely in the pocket of someone who's giving them $200 a year. But but I remind people that it's not like they're making a living off the backs of pharmaceutical company lunches and pens and stuff like that. But it's a relationship. You know, the pharmaceutical rep comes by, they give you 10 pens, you know, that costs nothing, but they're in your drawer and you're writing a prescription and you see that little visor label on it. And, and it's just in your head a little bit. And so it is out there. And I really encourage all patients when they're talking to their doctor and the doctor makes a recommendation, they say, I think you should take drug X, ask what are the other choices, um, you know, and what's your opinion on them so that you can sort of see, are they pushing only one option when there are five available or is there really only one option for this particular condition? And how does the U.S. drug patent system work in a way that unfortunately leads to uh, some higher prices with regards to medications that extend beyond what that initial patent suggests? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we're getting wonky, I suppose, but patent reform would go a long way, I think, to bringing down drug prices. And so pharmaceutical companies, you know, once they issue that initial patent, which is usually on a molecule, they've developed a molecule, they haven't even tested it, potentially even in animals yet. They file that initial initial patent, the clock starts ticking. And depending on some provisions of the patent law, they might have between 12 and 20 years from that clock starting ticking when they have exclusive rights to market this. But it takes years and years and years to go from the cell culture to animals to, uh, to finally human studies and to get that coveted FDA approval, which allows you to market the drug and actually sell it to someone. That can take a decade. And so that's really eaten in, if you're a pharmaceutical exec, that's eaten into your exclusive time, which is the time when there's no generic competition. You can essentially charge you know, whatever the market will bear for your drug, and that's indeed what they charge. Some people might say, you know, even that's okay. We'll give you five years, six years of exclusive exclusivity. You worked hard on this. It can it can cost five hundred million dollars to bring a new drug to market. Like you, you deserve something. I'm, you know, I'm not crazy. Sure, that's fine. But what happens is, drug companies will make tiny tweaks to the agent or the mechanism of delivery. They might change the dose. They might change it from a capsule to a pill or from a short acting pill to a long acting pill. Minor formulary changes that can then reset patent protections on that drug and push the can down the road further and further and further. And they have every incentive to do that because who wants competition in the marketplace if you're a for-profit company? And while a lot of people feel like generic drugs are the answer here, and obviously when a drug goes off patent, you can make generics that are much cheaper. You say it's not as simple as that. So why are generic drugs not necessarily an easy fix to this problem? Yeah, it is. It's it's one of those things people think, oh yeah, more generics would be good. The, the problem is, again, I mean, to some extent that even generic drug companies are for-profit companies. So if you're a generic drug producer, you've got to look at the marketplace and you got to say, okay, if I make this drug, what's going to cost me? how much can I sell it for? And if you're the first generic coming in after a brand goes off patent, you can do pretty well because you're going to sell it for, you're going to undercut the brand, but you're not going to undercut by too much, right? You can still make a profit. Well, if you're the next generic to come in, you've got to undercut both of those and so on and so forth. And so you're ratcheting down every time your profit margins. And for in many cases, there's no generic company that's willing to do that. It's just too slim a profit margin. So you end up with all these drugs. You have many drugs that are off patent and have no generic competition. They still are effectively monopolies just because it's not cost effective for any generic company to get in there. 
for many, many more, you only have one generic competitor. And while cheaper, it's not that maybe it's 20% cheaper, but remember the drug price is already inflated by 50 times over manufacturing costs. So getting a 20% discount, you know, we'll take it, but that's not, that's not enough. So the reforms need to be bigger. And really the major thing that can happen here is allowing the people who are paying for these drugs, which are generally insurance plans, Medicare and Medicaid to negotiate with those drug makers as to what the price will be. And of course, there's immense pressure uh, against that. We actually now have a law that may come into effect in 2025, depending on the political wins in the United States that does allow some negotiation for drug prices. I'm really excited to see how that affects things moving forward. But already pharmaceutical companies are increasing their prices in anticipation of the law that isn't active yet that will allow the government to negotiate prices back down. So it's 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 a real tough one. Early in this book, you point out that you and your fellow doctors have three main goals. That is to make people better, not pay, make people worse, and avoid having to deal with insurance companies. Now we'll put the insurance company <laughs> issue aside for a few minutes uh, to talk about that doctor-patient relationship a little bit more. Uh, you also admit that the Institute of Medicine reported that around 98,000 Americans per year die of medical errors. How are doctors most commonly wrong in ways that prove to be fatal like this? Yeah, it was important to me to, you know, as someone, I'm a doctor, I take care of patients, I'm a researcher, I'm a lover of medicine. I, As I write in the book, I, I, I think that there's no endeavor that humankind has undertaken that has alleviated more suffering than, than the scientific approach to medicine. It, it really has. And I encourage people to think of all the medical issues they've had in their life. And if they had those same issues and it was 500 years ago, would they be alive today? You know, that appendicitis you had when you were nine, that was fatal, right? So progress has been incredible, but I thought it was important to acknowledge the fact that there are a lot of imperfections. There's still things that we can do and medical errors do happen. Um, and it's something we need to acknowledge. The most common medical error that is gonna happen is not one of commission where we do the we give the patient the wrong drug or we operate on the wrong you know knee or something. These things do happen. They're big deals when they happen. There's a lot of investigations, but it's really errors of omission when we fail to consider a diagnosis and there are a lot of very human biases that play into this. For example, you know, you see someone in the ER in the emergency room um, and they had pneumonia and you examine them and you admit them and you give them some IV antibiotics and they do quite well. And the next night you see a very similar patient, you know, short of breath, has some infiltrate in the lung, looks like pneumonia. You admit them and you've just because you're that's what happened last time. You just you're a human. You sort of get used to these patterns and you miss the pulmonary embolism um, that you should have diagnosed. Those issues are, um, there's a lot of approaches to solving this. Number one is giving doctors a little more time, giving um, uh, to, to work with patients, to listen to them, to teach doctors how to listen to patients, to give ancillary medical services, the nurses, the pharmacists, more um, more of a voice in the care of the patient. I can't tell you how many times in my medical training that a nurse saved my skin because I hadn't thought of something or I was about to do something that probably wouldn't have been the right idea. So there's a lot of cultural issues there. But that the biggest question I ask my trainees when they're presenting a case to me, 
every single time is what else could this be? And patients should ask their doctors that too. Um, it forces your brain to be like, you know, you're in that fit. You're like, this is pneumonia. I mean, I've seen a million pneumonias. I know what pneumonia looks like. This is pneumonia. Someone says, what else could this be? You're forced to say, well, all right. I, I suppose this could be a very strange presentation of, you know, pulmonary infarction or pulmonary embolism or something. And it's just those small cognitive tweaks to our process that can save some lives. You also write that a surprising amount of medical care is driven by surrogate outcomes. What exactly are these? <laughs> There's only three things that really matter when it comes to your treatment. There are three outcomes that really matter. Do you live longer? Do you have a better quality of life? Um, or do you increase your uh, likelihood of having a baby? These are the three things because these are the things that whatever else you measure are the only things that matter to actual people. So if I tell your blood pressure is high, you might worry about that because you've been trained by doctors to say, oh, I'm not supposed to have high blood pressure. I don't want to have high blood pressure, but why don't you want to have high blood pressure? Well, you, you the numbers are just numbers. You, you don't want to have high blood pressure because you've learned that high blood pressure is associated with the risk of heart attack and stroke, and you don't want to have a heart attack or stroke. Well, wait, why don't you want to have a heart attack or stroke? Well, really, because those things can kill you and you don't want to die, <laughs> or those things can hurt you and affect your quality of life. And we're right back to those same outcomes, birth, death, quality of life, the three big outcomes that matter. <laughs> and so anything else that we study is a surrogate marker of those things. Doesn't mean it's not important, but if I invent a drug that lowers blood pressure and I say, oh, look, you know, I did all my statistical tests and this reduces blood pressure on average from 140 systolic to 120 systolic, that's great, sure, because we know that blood pressure leads to these bad things. But in the end, what I really wanna know is will this drug save my patient's life? And we've been burned before by embracing a drug that, improves a surrogate outcome only to later discover that it doesn't improve or even makes worse those one of those three ultimate outcomes, birth, death, or quality of life. We got to be careful about that. Now, in talking about the doctor-patient relationship, we've obviously uh, spent the last few minutes talking about the doctor side of things, but it uh, does take a uh, certain compliance from the patient for the doctor to be able to do their job properly. And a part of a doctor's job is oftentimes getting a patient to change his or her mind about something. And you say that uh, patients and people in general can change their minds for good and bad reasons. What do you mean by the latter as it pertains to patients? Yeah, changing your mind is tough. Um, and I think it's a resistance to changing your mind or changing your habits that leads people to a lot of bad medical beliefs. The first uh, part of this book talks about motivated reasoning, which is a, a major issue both for doctors and patients. But from the patient side, this is when you make a medical decision based on what you want to be true rather than what is true. So, you know, an extreme example, a patient um, gets a diagnosis of metastatic cancer, right? Nobody wants that. You know, that's that's horrible news. They want it to be true that there is a cure available for them. Who wouldn't? They then decide because they go online and they read testimonials that, you know, eliminating all processed sugar from the diet uh, will cure their cancer. From standing back, if you're not in that situation, you look at that and you think, well, that's that's not a great idea, right? Like that, that's that's making a bad decision. And and it is. Um, people forego, you know, therapies that do work to embrace these alternative therapies. And the reason why, though, is because 
those other therapies, cutting sugar out of your diet, allows you to believe something that you want to be true, that you can be healthy again relatively easily, which is something we all want. Changing someone's mind means reframing those motivations, reframing the motivated reasoning. And it's really, really hard. Now you can do it for good reasons. And that's for that there's evidence um, that you work on rationality. And importantly, you know, you, you reflect internally to realize what it is that is motivating you to come to certain conclusions and be willing to embrace alternative conclusions. Of course, you can also change your mind for bad reasons, which is you go out there and you search and you find data that supports what you want to be true. This is this like cherry picking of information. And in the information age that we're in, the age of social media, everything is out there. You no longer have to go to the library to find some weird book that someone self-published in 1950 to discover, you know, some weird plant that's a cure for, for, for cancer. You can just Google, you know, non-chemotherapy cures for cancer, and you'll be presented with a thousand different options, none of which are going to work for you, but all of them come with pretty pictures, testimonials, quotes, et cetera. And when that's what we want to believe, it's there, it's being fed right to us. And it leads people down some pretty dark and dangerous pathways, certainly. Well, you're exactly right about motivated reasoning. And by the way, this goes well beyond the medical profession. It can deal with pretty much every aspect of life, as you just said. I mean, on social media and just the internet in general, you really can find uh, a website or a supposed publication to back up whatever theory it is that you believe. And it could be something that's extremely plausible, or it could be something that's batshit crazy. I mean, there are people that believe <laughs> yeah. that the earth is flat right now, right? But yeah. uh, you talk about uh, different methods to combat motivated reasoning. It includes things like finding more data, but going outside of your comfort zone and doing so, understanding that there really are no guarantees in life, uh, outsourcing or sharing your beliefs with others and listening what to what they have to say in return, and also knowing yourself as well. I want to talk a little bit more about sharing your beliefs with others because mm -hmm. we are tribal people. I mean, it's what we've been throughout our, uh, our evolution is we find people that we have common beliefs in and we uh, stick with those folks. But especially in this day and age where it's almost like dialogue is discouraged and debate is discouraged, it's why it's all the more important to find people who don't necessarily agree with what it is you think so you can take more information in to maybe make a, a more informed choice in the long run. Absolutely. We have the ability now to form tribes around a, a single idea, which is something we never could do before. Right. Um, if you were the guy in your town who believed in Bigfoot, you know, you were the only guy in town and, and they kind of thought, oh, that's that crazy guy who believes in Bigfoot. Well, now that guy in every town around the world can get together online and have a big echo chamber about Bigfoot and sort of create content and reinforce each other's beliefs. You have to recognize when you're in that bubble. Asking people or telling, talking to people about your beliefs and listening, it's hard, listening with an open heart and mind is really necessary to consider that you might be wrong. We're in an age where people like can't admit that they're wrong. They, they can't fathom that they could be wrong about something, particularly when it's emotionally resonant to them. It just feels right. I can't be wrong. And the truth is that we can all be wrong. We've all been wrong before. Remember the times you've been wrong. And there's so much growth that comes with that realization. And you get there by talking to people with different beliefs than you. I do think you need to do it in person if you can. Um, you know, online is very difficult. 
maybe in private messages and stuff, it can work, but the public online forums, your, your Twitters and, and, and Facebook do not reward humility. And these are conversations that require humility. Both parties need to be able to say, here's what I think. I'm not totally sure. And you know what, if you write something on Twitter that says like, oh, you know, here's what I think about uh, vaccines or masks or whatever. I'm not totally sure, but here's what I think. You know, no one, that doesn't, no one's going to engage with that. We don't want that in our social media. We want definite, absolute, this is killing 50 billion people a year. You know, this is the greatest invention of all mankind in history, right? We, we gravitate to those extreme takes and it pushes people apart. It's harder to do when you're in person, when you're one-on-one, -on -one. you just can't take that stance. So be humble, talk to people and, and really listen. You got to ask yourself, could I be wrong on this one? Because it, it can really, I mean, it can save your life to realize you're wrong. Uh, it, when it comes to medicine. Yeah, it's very difficult to empathize with text on a screen. Yeah. It's much easier to spew vitriol if somebody is uh, speaking in a way that you don't like or agree with versus trying to, to really understand what that person is saying. And I think uh, one of the important things with civil debate, and this is something that I feel like society was really getting right 40, 50 years ago, is understanding that it's not necessarily going to change your mind, but showing enough respect to try and learn where that other person is coming from will, I think, create a, a healthier society on the whole. Absolutely. Um, and where I do see hope here is um, is I have some younger kids. I, I my, my oldest daughter's 12. And the younger generations are swinging back a little bit. They're, they're actually a little bit better at this and navigating online. And maybe because they you know, it's like they were born in the ocean, right? They can swim. <laughs> they, um, maybe they, they, they seem to sort of get it a little bit more. I mean, we'll see what happens as they get older, but I'm hoping we can come back um, to, you know, again, rewarding the nuance. And medicine is a science of nuance. I get very jealous of the astronomers and the physicists who can say, you know, we predicted using these complicated math formulas that this particle should exist. And sure enough, we did this experiment and there's the particle we predicted and, you know, congratulations all around. Um, that's cool. That's awesome. Medicine doesn't work that way. Medicine is about playing the percentages and your doctor needs to tell you and you need to understand that when we make a recommendation, we're not sure. We're in Vegas with you. We're saying this has the best chance of working. Are we sure it's going to work? No, but we think it's got a better chance than these other three options. So let's talk about it. And let's make a decision where it's a game of hedging bets, but in an era where certainty is rewarded so strongly, people think that hedging bets is weak, that, that, you know, the medicine's lack of certain certainty, medicine's humility sometimes is a sign that we don't know what we're doing. And, and it's quite the opposite. Yeah. That was one of the more interesting things that I read in this book, that the biggest secret in medicine is that there's a good chance the medication you're taking <laughs> isn't going to work for you, Perry. So why is it still worth it to take it, even if it doesn't help uh, oftentimes. Yeah. And this is something doctors don't really get either. And I, I want to be clear. It's it's not like we're prescribing medicine willy-nilly or, or nonsensically, but I'll give you an example. Let's say you've got a hundred people. I'm a doctor. I've got a hundred people in my practice with very high blood pressure. And you ask me, hey, in the next 10 years, how many of those people with very high blood pressure are going to have a stroke? I might tell you something like, well, you know, the chance would be about 10%. So 10 out of those 100 will have a stroke. And, and docs are pretty good at this. There, there have been studies, we're, we're pretty good at that kind of prognosis. And then if you ask me, hey, if you treat these people, you know, get their blood pressure down, 
how many uh, are going to have a stroke in, in 10 years. And, and we might think about that and say, okay, um, well, instead of 10, I might get that down to five. Now that's amazing. I just cut the stroke rate in half, but let's dig into those numbers a little bit. What have I done? I've treated a hundred people in my practice to get their blood pressures under control. And I've prevented five strokes over 10 years. So for those five people, I saved their life, or at least I saved their quality of life. And they would be incredibly thankful, I, I, I would assume. <laughs> I mean, I don't ask them to, but that that's a great thing. But 95 of those people I treated, and hopefully the treatment was fine. You know, they didn't have terrible side effects, but I didn't, they weren't going to have a stroke anyway. And what that shows is that the population benefit of a treatment, me treating that 100 people is a good. I saved lives by treating those 100 people, but on an individual level, the chances are you were in the 95, not the five. What we don't know and why we recommend that you take the drug is because we don't know who the five are in advance. That's what we don't know. If we knew who the five people who are going to be saved by the drug were, then we would only treat those five people. Well, at least the ethical <laughs> amongst us would only treat those five people. But because we can't know, it's like pulling on the slot machine in Vegas. We have to maximize the odds as much as possible. So if a patient asks me, doc, what's the chance that this medication will help me? I've got to tell them if I'm being honest, I've got to say, listen, you know, chances are you're not going to have a stroke in the next 10 years. You know, most people in your situation won't, but there's a slight chance that you will. And if you will, there's a, ch th this should lower the risk of that happening. Um, and you got to talk about that. And one thing I teach the medical students is that two rational beings, a physician and a patient can disagree on this and both still be rational because the physician's treating a hundred people, right? I know from society perspective that I should get everyone's blood pressure down. There'll be less strokes in the world and less strokes in the world is a good thing. An individual might say, you know what? I, I, I just, you know, I don't like the medication. I don't like the cost. I don't like the side effects. And I'm willing to roll the dice here and assume I'm one of the 90 and not one of the 10. Um, and that's rational too. And we need to be able to sort of accept that and work with patients in that in that way. How much are a drug's potential side effects worth considering for a patient when deciding whether or not to take a drug, Perry? It depends. Um, you know, the 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 number that I just kind of worked through with you where I was looking at, you know, five, we're going to save five people out of 100 is, the, is an actual statistical term called the number needed to treat. How many people do you need to treat to prevent one something bad from happening? The, the acronym um, is NNT, correct? NNT, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so every drug has a different NNT and you can actually look them up. You can Google the name of the drug and NNT and you'll, for most common drugs, at least you'll find how many people need to be treated with this drug to prevent one heart attack, one stroke, one death, one, whatever the drug promises to do. You can use that information then say, okay, well, how much am I willing to tolerate side effects? For example, wearing a seatbelt has a number needed to treat of something like one in 10,000 or one in 25,000, which is to say that 25,000 of us needs to wear our seatbelt to save one of our lives during, to save one of our lives, period. Most of us aren't going to get in nearly fatal car crashes, fortunately. So we wear our seatbelts, but it really doesn't matter that much. I mean, unless you're that one person who gets in that horrible car crash, but the side effect of wearing a seatbelt is nothing, right? I mean, it costs nothing doesn't bother us. We're so used to it. In fact, I can't, if I'm not wearing a seatbelt, I feel weird now. Right. So, yeah. so, so that's a huge number needed to treat, but like, there's no side effects. So who cares, you know, if it's a vitamin or something like that, and there's no side effects, you can tolerate a large number needed to treat. If you're talking chemotherapy, you're talking something that makes your hair fall out, makes you vomit three times a day. Well, you want to have a conversation with your doctor, like, okay, 
what are we talking about? How many people do you need to treat with this chemotherapy to save one life or to give me one extra year of life or one extra month of life? And it just, it's going to vary. Um, but you have the right to make that decision as an individual. And you also talk about when there is no available cure to what ails the patient for a doctor, there is still a responsibility that you have, and that is to to help that person find meaning. How have you yeah. done this as a doctor in the past? Yeah. Um, Victor Frankl said, despair is suffering without meaning. And I think about that a lot. Many of our patients are suffering. Some of them are suffering because they have an incurable disease that may be fatal. Some with an incurable disease that isn't fatal, but is still life altering, you know, chronic pain, depression, anxiety. Some we have more treatments for, some we have less treatments for, but suffering is unavoidable in life. You know, the, we've known this, the Buddhists knew this. Um, suffering is part of life. We will all feel pain. That's going to happen. But despair is avoidable. And um, I don't like my patients to despair. So what do you do when you've got a terminal condition and there is no treatment, right? There's this... Um, this, some doctors feel like, well, we've got to give hope. We, we've just, we just make something up. We say, oh, I'll hang in there. Maybe next year there'll be a cure that comes out. And okay. I, I find this a little patronizing, to be honest. I think most of our patients are, um, are smarter than that. The key to me and in the experiences I've had with patients is helping them find meaning in that suffering. Mm -hmm. What can they do to if they're going to be in this pain, if they're going to, you know, feel this thing to make their life meaningful, nevertheless. And sometimes that's um, helping others. Sometimes it's, you know, finding a community of people suffering from the same thing and supporting each other through that suffering. Sometimes it's medical research. I mean, some of the most moving experiences I've had as someone who conducts medical research is enrolling a participant in a clinical trial who's doing it not because they expect that they're going to get cured from this clinical trial, but because they believe that that's their contribution to the future. And it gave them meaning to participate. It gave them a feeling like, yeah, it might not save me. And maybe this isn't the drug that's going to change things. But every step we take closer to that goal is a step in the right direction. And it's those patients who can find meaning in suffering that do really well. In fact, those patients likely live longer, even with terminal diseases. And so doctors need to help with that. That should be part of our treatment. And we're not great at it. We're, you know, American medicine, medicine writ large is overly medicalized. We, we sort of say, okay, well, what's the condition and what are the drugs that treat the condition? Or, you know, sometimes what's the psychotherapy that treats the condition, but it's still kind of plugging a plug into, you know, this goes with this and this goes with this type of thing. Um, and we need to move beyond that. The ways our patients are suffering now are not amenable to drug therapy in, 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 in many ways. Um, there's an epidemic of loneliness and social isolation now. There's no drug for loneliness. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And yet, you know, your doctor has probably never asked you if you feel lonely. Um, and yet it's despair, these deaths of despair and loneliness, alcohol abuse, substance abuse, suicide that are the largest killers of people in what we call their prime of life, you know, people my age between 30 and 45, um, 30 and 55 years old, that's what's getting people. It's, it's loneliness. Um, and we need to be able to discuss that with them. Yeah. There are some other places around the world and I've had some conversations recently with other authors who point out 
that uh, in the UK, for instance, there are actual programs to address loneliness when someone comes in. Uh, sometimes it's a, with a physical ailment and sometimes it's uh, something that's more along the lines of mental illness where it's literally prescribing that they go out to eat lunch with somebody that they know or they set them up with a club where there is a common bond, whether it's gardening or bowling or something along those lines. Yeah, and, uh, They've seen some incredible results with regards to uh, those individuals actually getting better. I, I, I'm a, a, a nephrologist by training, well, internal medicine and nephrology. Nephrology is kidney disease. And um, we do a lot of dialysis, obviously. And dialysis can be done in center, you know, so there's 20 chairs and everyone's getting dialysis during a sort of four hour shift, or it can be done at home. And, you know, as someone who has a family at home and and I think a rich home life, when I sort of hypothetically say, oh, what would I do? I say, oh, I obviously I do it at home. You know, I'm comfortable in my own bed and handle it and everything. I've been surprised at how many patients in the dialysis center I've talked to about that. And they say, no, no, no. Like, I like it here. Like I sit next to you know, I sit next to Joe here. Um, this is this is a social activity, even though it's this you know it's this medical therapy. There's blood flowing, and you know it's 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 a very different context, but it's so important um, to humans. Like we're we're social creatures. We need that part of our brain. And again, I I, I don't mean to come down too hard on social media and the internet um, during this interview, but as connected as we are virtually, we've never been more isolated from each other because the interaction with text on a screen or even picture or video is just not the same. Um, it just doesn't click the same thing in our, you know, dumb ape brains that needs to be part of something larger than ourselves. Yeah, you know, social media is such a double-edged sword because there is so much great information at our disposal, but when you become too engaged, it just becomes something that's extremely unhealthy. And even seemingly productive conversations aren't going to be nearly as fruitful as if you're getting out in the world and being present with other people versus just staring at a screen for hours on end. Absolutely. Um, and yet it's so optimized for that. Um, uh, and I'm as guilty as I'm as guilty as anyone else. You know, I yell at my 12 year old for being on her screen too much. Meanwhile, you know, I'm walking up the stairs in our house and I just kind of habitually pull my phone out of my pocket and look at the screen as I'm, you know, like it's, it's, we're, we're quite conditioned um, to, to, to be behaving that way. It's not going to be easy to change, but I, I think the more we talk about it, the more we acknowledge the problems, the better things will get. Terry, I've got an eight and six year old at home. That and the uh, the diet thing are the two biggest battles oh, yeah. fighting on a daily basis. But you're right. I'm a bit of a hypocrite because I'm on my computer doing work at night when I need to be doing more in, with regards to playing with them or talking to them or whatever else. And they sometimes say, Dad, stop staring at your computer. I'm like, all right, well, I can't tell you not to do this or that I'm, I'm <laughs> right. of it as well. But uh, that's maybe a conversation for a different time. Those who do follow you online, Perry, know that you are a big fan of breaking down medical research. And the gold standard here is randomized controlled trials, which you are obsessed with. Why were <laughs> randomized controlled trials such a crucial development in modern medicine? And how exactly do they work when they are working correctly? Well, randomized controlled trials moved the needle from the previous standard of evidence to what I would call high quality evidence. Early on, you know, hundreds of years ago, medicine was an authoritarian regime. You treated people the way you treated people because you were taught that that's the way to treat them by more senior doctors who presumably had more experience. And it works okay, but you still get things like, you know, bloodletting and phrenology when you use that technique. <laughs> With the development of the scientific method, 
biologic plausibility entered into the realm. Something should work because it comports with how biology works. Saying uh, that if you 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 know kill a rooster and and rub it on your chest will cure a heart attack. You know, starting in the really the, the the Renaissance, but maybe the 1800s forward, those types of beliefs are getting phased out because they're not biologically plausible. They don't make sense with kind of a mechanistic understanding of the universe. But biologic plausibility only takes you so far. In fact, there's a lot of things that are biologically plausible that nevertheless don't work. For example, when COVID first came out, I remember looking at the virus, you know, this is 20 March of 2020. I'm looking at the genetic code of the virus and the proteins as they're being sequenced. And I put some stuff into a database to look at where the body expressed these receptors for COVID and, and obviously a lot in the nasal passages and the lungs, but then like number three hit or something was testicular tissue. Mm-hmm. So early on, I was like, oh man, interesting, you know, testicular tissue, it's going to it's biologically plausible that COVID will cause like infertility, you know, like mumps does in, in men and what a disaster that would be. Now I didn't write about this at the time because I've, I know that biologically plausible is the start of a medical hypothesis. It's not the end because you can say, Oh, that makes sense. Maybe right. Makes sense. But is it true? (laughs) You have to actually do, you have to get data and test it. And the way that you test the biologically plausible thing is is through randomization. The example I give for this is if I gave you a bunch of random people who take a statin, a cholesterol-lowering medication, and a bunch of random people who don't take a statin, who's more likely to have a heart attack? Most people say, oh, the people who don't take the statin because, you know, statins are supposed to ruin heart attacks. Well, actually, no. The people who are taking statins are much more likely to have heart attacks than the people who aren't. Why? Hmm. Because who takes statins? Well, people who are older, who've had a history of heart attacks, who have high cholesterol, who doesn't take statins, my kids, um, you know, the 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 the, the marathon athlete, etc. I just told you I picked a hundred random people not on statins, right? And so that makes observational research, where I just ask a question, who takes what and what are their outcomes, really difficult to do, because of I'll observe that the people on statins have worse outcomes, unless I do statistical manipulations to account for the fact that they're older and have had heart attacks before and have higher cholesterol and diabetes more often and hypertension more often and so on and so on and so forth. The way to cut through all that red tape is you take a group of people, presumably who are at risk of the outcome, so it's ethical, and you randomize them to either get a statin or not get a statin. Now your two groups are completely comparable. You just flipped a coin. The ages are going to be the same. The race breakdown is going to be the same. The prevalence of diabetes is going to be the same because, you know, random chance you get a diabetic here, diabetic there. What's more important, even the things you can't measure easily, the person's um, mojo, as I call it, you know, just some ineffable quality about them, that will also be balanced between the groups. That's the power of randomization. Then you carry those groups forward and you can actually see what happens. And once we started doing randomized trials, we found that biologic plausibility messes up sometimes. One case is where we had, we knew that people after heart attacks were dying. Even if you you got them through the heart attack um, in the mid eighties, you know, many in the next few months would, would have a sudden cardiac arrest due to arrhythmia. And in the mid-80s, these antiarrhythmic drugs came out. They stopped arrhythmias. They did. They really did work. Um, and so biologically plausible, someone has a heart attack, give them the antiarrhythmic drug because we know that they're dying of arrhythmias. So let's stop that and, and it should work. And if all you cared about was biologic plausibility, you'd be done and we'd all be taking antiarrhythmics after heart attacks now. 
1989, they did a randomized trial. They took people after a heart attack, half got uh, the antiarrhythmic drug, half got placebo. And the death rate from sudden cardiac death was 5% in the antiarrhythmia group and 1% in the placebo group. So yes, it stopped arrhythmias, but it was killing people. People always kind of their minds blown by this. How did no one know? But the truth is, if you're a doctor treating a patient with an antiarrhythmic drug, you know, how many people are you caring for in your practice that had a recent heart attack? 10, maybe if you're a big practice with a lot of heart disease, 50. And if the death rate in those 50 is 5% on an antiarrhythmic drug, well, that's two people. Is, is that enough signal for you as an individual to say like, oh man, these drugs are bad? No, you would just kind of say, oh yeah, well, people die after heart attacks. These things happen, you know, that medicine is imperfect. It requires large scale data gathering to actually learn the truth, especially, you know, when you're talking about these small percentages. And that's why randomized trials are just so powerful and so important because anecdotes and stories, this person died, this person didn't die, this person got this drug and all of a sudden they were better and they were running marathons and this person didn't. It really boils down to nothing unless you have all the data in one place. When randomized controlled trials go wrong, how are they going wrong? Well, they can go wrong in some different ways. Oftentimes it's the trial design. So um, the the people who design the trial can pick the wrong outcome. For example, I've already told you that there's three important outcomes. There's birth rates, death rates, and quality of life. And anything other than those three outcomes could potentially be a wrong outcome to pick for your randomized trial. Now, there are reasons people pick surrogate outcomes like blood pressure change for their randomized trial. It's easier to observe. It happens much more commonly than death, fortunately. Um, so you don't need to enroll as many people. Um, that makes the trial less expensive. So these are often important steps to those more definitive trials, but that can go wrong. They can design uh, the intervention in the control group so that they are not testing things appropriately. You know, the classic design of a drug trial is you have a drug and you have a placebo, which is a sugar pill or, you know, something, but you got to even be careful about that sugar pill. It should look the same as the drug. It should presumably, if the drug has kind of a, a weird effect that patients might recognize, for example, some drugs kind of give you a funny taste in your mouth or something like that. You should probably design the placebo to give you kind of a funny taste in your mouth. And the reason is that if patients can or participants can figure out which arm of the trial they're in, it's important that they don't know if they're getting the placebo or not, right? Because if they know they're getting the placebo, they might not have a strong response to it. Um, but if they can figure out, oh, I must be getting the drug because my pee turns blue, you know, <laughs> and that's, I know that's a side effect of this drug, but it doesn't happen in the placebo group. You're going to get bias in your results. And of course, I acknowledge in the book that, that fraud exists too. And, and, and just because I give an example in the book of a randomized trial that if you read it, you'd be like, well, that seems like a very nicely designed randomized trial. It was randomizing women trying to get pregnant with in vitro fertilization to usual care. Fine. That's the control group versus intercessory prayer, which is, you know, they had prayer groups praying for them to get pregnant. I'll make a long story short and say it was a very nicely written trial, seemed to show very strong effect of prayer. It turned out to just be a fraud. It was, the, the data was just made up entirely. Uh, the women, as far as we can tell, didn't even exist. And so you do have to remember that, like, you can't believe everything you read. But uh, so, so I'm not saying because randomized trial, I'm obsessed with randomized trials, that every randomized trial is an immediate 
you know, embrace this thing and believe in it for me, but it's the best of what we have. And what I often tell my students and stuff is just no one study is enough. You know, even a very nicely done randomized trial that shows a new drug works. Like I generally want that second follow-up study, the replication study from a different group, um, because, you know, it's easy to get excited early on and, and sometimes it's appropriate, but unless you're in dire situation, waiting for that follow-up study is usually a safe bet to make sure there's no shenanigans going on. How difficult is it to uh, to have somebody try and, and carry out a study of replication? Because oftentimes uh, scientists, they want to make their own discovery and replicating it means uh, in a way copying somebody else's work to see whether or not it's true. So is that... Is that a difficult request at times in the research community? It's it's even worse than that, Trey. Yeah, it is. And it's not only because scientists want to um uh to kind of make their own way. I, I get that. It's also because the people who fund these studies, including the National Institutes of Health, don't reward replication. So mm-hmm. I've written many NIH grants. I've received a few NIH grants, not as many as I've written. And <laughs> um there are three components that they grade you on, they score you on. Significance, how important is the problem? Approach, what is your, you know, uh, how are you going to do this? How are you going to execute the study? And innovation, how new and exciting is this? And it's that innovation thing that just kills replication, right? Because if I'm saying, oh, I'm going to do the exact same study as these other guys, um, the NIH is going to say, well, that's not innovative at all. You know, we fund innovative cutting edge research. Everyone wants to fund the cutting edge. But what happens with pushing the cutting edge forward and forward and forward is that we leave behind these one-off studies that just kind of leach into the zeitgeist as like, oh, that's that's correct. And this is what we do. And yeah, we only have one study, but it seems right. And time marches on. And often you have years, sometimes even a decade between the initial study and the follow-up study that shows that the initial study wasn't correct. And we need to start changing that. We need to start rewarding people for replication. We need to start forcing those studies to release their data to the public. So those initial studies that come out, when you see that manuscript, people are often surprised to hear this. I do peer review for a lot of different journals, which means I get the study and I read through it and I make comments and say things to the author like, oh, well, this conclusion is not supported by the data and you need to rephrase this. And could you please analyze this because of, you know, I think you didn't acknowledge X, Y, and Z. It's a good process. It makes the paper stronger. But what I don't get is a data set. When I do peer review, I get what the author has written, the figures that they have developed, the tables that they've developed for their manuscript. I don't get their raw data. I can't verify, you know, they can tell me the average age of patients in this study was 65.3 years. I have no way to verify whether that's true or not. I I just have to take their word for it. And of course, most people are honest. But if we had a standard of, oh yeah, we're going to release all that data in, in de-identified form. We're not going to give people your name and address, but you know, in a de-identified format, we're going to release this to the public. What you'd have is a lot of researchers who very quickly could look at these seminal trials and say, you know, let's cut this a few different ways. Okay, they did this analysis and that seems good. They did a good job. But what if we look at it this way? What if we try this statistical approach instead of that? Do we still get the same results? And it'll start to give us reassurance that there's, you know, some real there there. Yeah, you give a great explanation just now, but also in the book is uh, to why and how open data can be a really good deterrent for research fraud. But my question, Perry, is why is that not already the standard? That seems such like an (laughs) obvious to make things better. 
it blows me away too every time I I see this this happen. I, I, there, there are a couple of reasons why open data isn't the standard, or at least the reasons people will give you. The number one reason you'll get from people who are trying to hoard their data is uh, patient safety, patient privacy. They'll say, look, these are real individuals out there in the world. These are their medical issues, their comorbidities. Some of them have, you know, cancer, HIV, et cetera. You know, we don't want to let that data out. That that's That's, you know, our responsibility to protect their privacy. But of course, there are many standards for data de-identification to make sure that you can't figure out who this yeah. person in the data is. There's really nice approaches for that nowadays. What I suspect happens more often is two things. Number one, the researcher is a little afraid of people trolling through their data because they're going to be embarrassed if they got something wrong. Mm -hmm. And I've felt that in, in my lab, we have two people do the um, data analysis in parallel without talking to each other when we do a new trial. So we have biostatistician and then an investigator or something, and they fill out all the tables and then we compare them. And it's like not in common that we get different, you know, that we get a different answer from the two different people. And then we come together and we say, okay, what did you do wrong? What did you do wrong? And let's figure this out. I'm sure that if you released all the data from these studies, yeah, there'd be people coming out on Twitter and being like, oh, you said the mean age was 65.3, but it looks like it's 65.5. What else are you hiding? You know, and 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 that kind of stuff. So we're going to have, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to allow for a little bit of human error in the process. The other thing people are afraid of is um, they want to publish more things from their data sets. They spent a lot of money and time running this clinical trial, years and years and years and thousands of patients. And they're going to put out the, their main paper. Sure, that's the big New England Journal paper or whatever. But there's a lot more data there. And they can release many more papers from that data, you know, looking at different outcomes, looking at different periods of time, et cetera, that can advance their career because the career of researchers is based on publications. This is this publish or perish. It's not based on data sharing. That is something else that we can change. Um, and, and people like me and others have been lobbying the big universities, including my own Yale, to include data sharing as one of the metrics for promotion from assistant professor to associate professor, from associate professor to full professor, as opposed to grants and publications, which has sort of been the standard for a while. And if we can change those cultural things, I think we'll see more open data, but it's, you're going to have to dr drag some researchers, you know, by their, by their ear to get them to do it, to be honest. Getting back to the uh, hospital and medical care setting now, how big a problem is the proverbial middleman? Uh, in patient care? Well, there's so many middlemen. Um, <laughs> the middlemen, there are 10 administrators for every doctor in the United States. It is, is mind blowing. Crazy. It takes 10 people to coordinate care around this physician, you know, who's nominally the one that knows what they're doing. The reason that you need so many administrators is twofold. Number one, we have so many different people who pay for medical care from Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance, you know, um, uh, self-pay, a variety of other mechanisms. And all of the all of that, all those payments are the result of negotiations, not nationally, not at a state level, but between individual health systems and individual insurers. And those are getting renegotiated continuously. So there's all these administrators whose only job is negotiating with Aetna or Blue Cross how much your EKG is going to get reimbursed. And it's hugely, hugely wasteful. That's a big problem. 
The other problem is that a lot of the administrators in medicine, the sort of middle management, does not come from a medical background. They come from a business background. And what this has led to is the conversion of medicine from a you know healing art into what resembles more a factory, right? These C-suite people, <laughs> I sound so so um, so angry at them. These C-suite people with their MBAs and their suits, right? But you know who I'm talking about. They are looking for every opportunity to maximize profit, and and that's even in a nonprofit scenario, like like most hospitals. Not all, but many hospitals are nonprofits. Nevertheless, they still need to maximize how much revenue they take in so that they can keep the lights on and keep paying everyone's salaries and all these 10 administrators that generate no revenue for the hospital whatsoever, but you still need to get them paid. And so, you know, you've got these C-suite executives who are viewing the process of seeing a patient in clinic the same way a Toyota executive views the process of getting a car off the assembly line and using the same terms. I mean, we have like the Six Sigma people and the lean, you know, manufacturing people coming to our clinic. And how can we get patients through quicker? How can we see more people? How can we, you know, can we, you know, make this more efficient? Go, 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 go. And what it means is that we're delivering care that might you know, check off the boxes, but is not the quality that our patients deserve. And it's certainly not what doctors want to do, but doctors haven't fought back enough. And I think it's because they haven't realized yet that they're not management anymore. Doctors are labor now. 70% of physicians in the United States are employed, employed physicians, employed by a healthcare system. They're not running their own practices. We kind of believe that we are. <laughs> they let us believe that we are, but we're not. We are, we have much more in common with you know, the the factory worker sitting in our office than we do with the guy in the C-suite that's telling us to see them faster. And if we start embracing that, that bond with labor, we might be able to start changing some of these things, but it's really going to take a movement. Yeah. My wife's a medical professional also. She's a family nurse practitioner. And it's, yeah. it's one of her big gripes is uh, this desire to speed things up, to shorten the amount of time that you have with each patient. One, because people aren't perfect. And for everybody that shows up five to 10 minutes early for an appointment, if somebody shows five shows up five to 10 minutes late, all of a sudden you're well behind the rest of your day. And sometimes patients require a little bit more time than that allotted 15 to 20 minutes. So uh, definitely something worth monitoring going forward. And uh, obviously uh, insurance companies, as you just mentioned, are a, a big part of the process here with the, uh, the middle people. Is there an obvious way with for you for how to make insurance more affordable to the average person? Yeah, I mean the, the the easy answer is to go to a single payer system, um, which is politically fraught and um, something that practically I just I don't see how we get there in this country given the current political climate. Although it would work, as demonstrated by every industrialized nation in the world except the United States. Yeah. What we can do though, and I talk about this a bit, is, is something called all payer rate setting. And what this basically says is that we're gonna there will be a body, presumably a government regulatory body, that is going to tell you what an EKG costs. Right now, the way it works is that the negotiator at my hospital negotiates with the negotiator at Aetna about what this EKG costs. And my hospital negotiator wants to get as much for the hospital as he possibly can. That's his job. And the person at Aetna wants to pay as least as possible. And that's where they're going to clash heads and they're going to spend time and hours and justifications, et cetera. All payer rate setting says, the government says, uh, EKGs cost 
for everyone, whether you have insurance, whether or not, that is what the, that's what Aetna pays. That's what that uninsured patient pays. That's what Blue Cross pays. Everyone pays $25 for an EKG. And what that does is it eliminates all of those negotiations across the country. It eliminates a lot of those administrators that um, are, you know, driving up costs just through the inefficiency of the system. And it allows insurers to compete on things other than that service, um, you know, ancillary benefits, gym memberships, uh, you know, mental health, other things that are really important. And this isn't a hypothetical. This 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 exists in precisely one state. Maryland has all payer rate setting. And it's really interesting that healthcare costs in Maryland, I believe when last I looked, I think they're the, the second cheapest in the nation, which considering that Maryland is actually one of the um, most expensive states to live in in the nation, like being one of the least expensive in terms of healthcare costs is pretty significant. And that's a major reason why. And all payer rates, it doesn't abolish insurance companies, you know, the CEO of all these insurance companies can keep their job. And to some extent, they might actually appreciate the fact that they don't have to go through this negotiation process, you know, 8,000 times a day with all these different hospitals. So that's a, that's a half measure, but it's one that I'd like to see people talk about more. And you offer a number of different potential solutions to the different levels of uh, problems that we've talked about today that go well beyond the insurance companies. For instance, uh, motivated reasoning, one possible solution here, and I'm a big believer in this. That's why I'm going to bring it up, even though I'm not asking you about it, is more formalized education with regards to things like logic classes and statistical training as early as elementary school. I mean, we need to do much more with regards to cultivating critical thinking and problem solving in this education system that is entirely too dependent on rote learning right now. So big kudos to you on that suggestion, Perry. With regards to improving the doctor-patient relationship, you give a, a bunch of different things doctors can do to be better. But as far as the patients are concerned, and this is our final question here, you say that patients can move closer to doctors by appreciating uncertainty. What do you mean by this? Yeah, there's this real human tendency to embrace certainty. Patients see multiple doctors sometimes for the same condition, uh, you know, second opinions, third opinions. I fully encourage that. But oftentimes the doctor they end up going with is the one who seems most sure of themselves. I've got this, you're taken care of, this will work 100%, no problem. And the truth is, as we've sort of talked about, is that medicine doesn't work that way. It's not physics, it's not mathematics. It is a it is a, a educated guess. It is hedging your bets. And patients need to understand that a doctor who gives you that full picture and says, "I think this will work. This is my experience and this is what the data shows. I can't make promises, but this is your best bet right now." is way better than the person on the internet who promises the quick fix with 100% satisfaction guaranteed. We need to recognize our tendency to embrace certainty and start to value uncertainty because it is an uncertain science. So I do ask patients to be thankful when their doctor says they're not sure because more often than not, that's the truth. And the other people who tell you they're so sure are the ones who are lying to you, believe it or not. He is F. Perry Wilson, MD. The new book is How Medicine Works and When It Doesn't, Learning Who to Trust to Get and Stay Healthy. Perry, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this fascinating, informative, and entertaining book. 
Thank you, Trey. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for tuning in. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.